Okay, so as is often the case, um, I was wasting time on my phone the other day. Um, I have a really bad habit of cycling between Twitter and Instagram on my phone uh, when I'm bored or when I'm procrastinating or when I should probably be paying attention to my family. Um, and as I'm on my phone, I nearly always think, I, really, I could be reading something right now, right? I could have a book open, but instead I just keep scrolling. Um, I'm convinced that uh, in the future, scientists and archaeologists are going to look at us and wonder why we have such developed thumb muscles and thumb structure. Um, but as I was bored slash procrastinating slash possibly neglecting my family, um, I read a tweet uh, that floored me. It said this, I've spent my whole life avoiding the experiences Jesus said he would use to help me grow. It immediately rang true for me. I avoid discomfort as much as possible. I immediately complain when sickness or when hardship hits. And left on my own, nearly every decision that I will make, I make to make my own life easier. And yet, as I read the book of Acts, I'm struck by how the disciples take a different approach. The religious authorities, when they threaten Peter and tell him that unless you stop talking about Jesus, we're going to throw you in prison, Peter looks at them and says, no thanks, I have to keep preaching about Jesus. Paul was warned numerous times that he'd have trouble in Jerusalem, but he went anyway because he knew that the Holy Spirit was leading him there. The disciples didn't seek out hardships, but neither did they spend every waking moment trying to avoid them. And from their hardships, we've learned a wealth of truth. This morning, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. So please turn there as I read our passage out loud. Acts 25, verses 1 through 12. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was, uh, replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. As he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, 
Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give them up to me. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Join me in prayer. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, and I ask you, Father, to speak, for we are listening. Father, all of your scripture, including this one, is breathed out by you, and it's useful. It shows us truth. It exposes our rebellion. It corrects our mistakes, and it trains us to live life your way. Your word teaches us in a way that completes us and equips us for every good work. Father, I pray this morning that we would find enjoyment in your words, Lord. Father, your word said, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on your law he meditates day and night. That person is like a tree planted by a river with strong roots, that's able to withstand the storm, that produces fruit in time and doesn't wither. Father, you tell us that the wicked do not listen to your words, but instead they're like, like dust that's blown around by the wind. Father, people who won't be able to stand on the day of judgment. Father, you know the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked Will perish. Father, your words are sure, and they make simple, the simple people like us, wise. Father, your words are right, and they rejoice our hearts. Father, your words are pure, and they enlighten us. Spirit, help us to understand your word this morning. Open our hearts to your word, and I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we spent a long time in the book of Acts. When we started, I only had one child. That, that's, that's a lie. That's not true. I think, when we, I think when we started, though, I only had four children, possibly, depending on when we started. They were first 2015. Yeah, I only had four kids then. So I've had a kid in the time that we've tried to get through this one book of the Bible. Um, but we're on the home stretch, I promise. One more month. Um, there's a ton of benefits in breaking down a book of the Bible and looking at all of the parts closely. Uh, there's beauty in the detail. However, like most books of the Bible, Acts is actually meant to be read all in one sitting. In fact, I would encourage you to go home and do so. When we break up a, a, a book of the Bible into smaller parts, and spread it out over a year, uh, we run the danger of missing the bigger picture. Um, especially in these later chapters, it seems like the author, that Luke, has a specific goal in mind. 
Remember that Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts for a man named Theophilus. And Luke told Theophilus why he wrote the book. Luke wanted to write an orderly narrative account of the things accomplished around them so that Theophilus would have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. Luke has a reason for every story that he includes in his book. And in these last chapters, most of Luke's stories seem to have a common theme. See if you can discern it. In Acts 18, the Jews in Corinth brought Paul before the Roman tribunal. Gallio tells the Jews that Paul has broken the Roman law. That Gallio tells them that if Paul had broken the law, sorry, then he would hear the case. But since Paul hasn't broken any law, he throws the case out. In Acts 19, there's a riot in Ephesus over the teaching of Paul. The town clerk quiets the crowd, looks at them, and says, if Paul has done something wrong, take him to the courts. We have courts. But if he hasn't done anything, then you need to stop because we're about to be arrested for rioting. And so the people leave, and they don't take Paul to court. In Acts 21, Paul is worshiping and praying in the temple according to the Old Testament law and in accordance with Jewish custom, and yet the people still riot. In Acts 23 and 24, Paul is brought before Felix, who can't find any evidence of Paul breaking either the Roman law or the Jewish law. Yet Paul is left in prison because Felix wanted to, A, do the Jews a favor, and B, if you paid attention, Paul refused to bribe him. <laughs> so he had to stay in jail for two more years. And again, in our passage today, we see Paul make the case that he didn't do anything wrong against the Jews or the Romans. And Festus agrees. So why is Luke telling us these stories, right? If you read this book all in one sitting, these stories are boom, 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 boom. Why is Luke including them? And I think he's making this point. Christianity is not a threat to the Jews or to the government. So this morning's sermon has three points, like any good Baptist sermon should. Um, and I take my three points directly from the text, uh, specifically verse 8, which says this, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense? I bet you can guess what my three points are based on that verse that has three phrases in it. So, my first point is this. Christianity is not against the Old Testament. Christianity is not against the Old Testament. In Acts 24, 14, Paul says this. According to the way, that was Paul's term for Christians, which the Jews call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So, as Christians, how should we approach the Old Testament? Jesus says something similar to Paul in his Sermon on the Mount, but he also provides us an important key. In Matthew 5, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, 
but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In fact, not only does Jesus not do away with the law and the prophets, he actually makes it even harder. He says that being angry with someone in your heart is just like committing murder. He says that lusting after someone in your heart is like committing adultery. Not only is Christianity not against the Old Testament law, Christianity actually holds the law in higher regard. But did you catch the the key in Jesus' statement? He didn't come to abolish the law and prophets, but he came to fulfill them. He came to fulfill them. Jesus fulfilled all of the law. And when we believe in Christ and are placed in him before God, it's as if we have fulfilled the law because we are in Christ. So as we read the Old Testament, we see the character of God and we see the holiness of God and we see our sinfulness and the fact that we cannot possibly measure up to God's standard. And it's a good thing that we see this because that is actually one of the reasons for the law. Paul says in Romans 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. The law exposes our sin. We are condemned before the law. But in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation for us because Christ was, one, condemned in our place, and two, he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for us. So Christianity is not against the Old Testament. Point two, Christianity is not against the temple. Christianity is not against the temple. The Jews charged Paul, saying that Paul had profaned the temple. And again, let me go back to chapter 24 to show you Paul's defense against that charge. Paul says this, Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my, to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Paul was willing to adhere to Jewish custom and law, which makes sense because I think sometimes we forget Paul is a Jew. And by following Jewish custom, Paul was obviously not doing anything against the Jewish religion, but neither was he violating his Christian faith. One amazing thing that I find about the Bible is that it contains the letters of Paul. So we can read a story about Paul and then flip over and we can read his thoughts about that particular topic. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul tells us why he still sometimes submits to Jewish custom even though he has freedom in Christ. He says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. 
To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So here we have another key. We are free in Christ to live like those around us, to enter their culture or enter their way of life in order to share the gospel clearly with them as long as we ourselves do not go outside the law of Christ. So Sharon and I don't cook pork in our house. Um, It's a conscious decision that we made when we moved to Malaysia. And we made that decision for a very important reason. If we cooked pork in our house, we would automatically exclude 60% of Malaysia's population from ever eating a meal with us, right? That's, that's most of Malaysia. Did you know that Muslims not only don't eat pork, they don't eat anything cooked in a pot that ever had pork in it? Or they don't use plates or utensils that have ever touched pork? So Sharon and I have kept our kitchen halal the entire time we've been in Malaysia. And as a result, we've been able to cook for our Muslim friends and they feel a freedom to eat whatever we provide for them. Now, as a Christian, do I have to submit to halal regulations? Not at all, right? I am free in Christ to eat all the pork that I want, right? Because Jesus himself declared all foods clean. And in case you don't believe the words of Jesus, he gave Peter a vision three times declaring all food clean. Um, and believe me, I could eat my body weight in char shoe and bacon and probably have eaten my body weight in char shoe and bacon, and we can discuss the health effects of that later, but I have freedom in Christ to eat as much bacon as I want. But by voluntarily submitting our kitchen to halal regulations, am I violating the law of Christ? No. No, there's nothing wrong with not cooking pork in your kitchen. And for our family, it's a gospel issue. And that's led to some good discussions for us with our neighbors. Some of you know that Craig and I take foreign tourists around Malaysia. And one of the things we do is try to introduce them to the religions of Malaysia. And we do that by taking them on a walking tour downtown. Uh, So within a few square uh, blocks, there's actually a Chinese temple a Hindu temple, a Sikh temple, a mosque, and a church. So a few years ago, uh, we were touring the Sikh temple, and a man asked us if we would like to perform a ritual concerning their holy book. Now, by doing so, I would definitely show honor and respect to the man's religion. Right? However... If I participated in that, would I be violating the law of Christ? 
I think yes. I think in that case, yes. I will not disrespect another religion's religious text, but I cannot honor it. Only God deserves honor and praise, and so in that instance, I had to respectfully decline. My final point. Christianity is not against the government. Right? So we've seen Christianity is not against the Old Testament. Two, Christianity is not against the temple. And three, Christianity is not against the government. Right? These were big issues in Paul's time. Like People were concerned that Paul was leaving Judaism, that he was disrespecting the temple, that he was doing something against the government. And Luke is making sure that his readers understand Christianity isn't against any of those things. So, in chapter 24, uh, again, the Jews say that Paul was stirring up riots. But if you read all of those stories, over and over again, it was never Paul that started the riots. It was always the, the people starting the riots. Paul wasn't secretly trying to overthrow Roman rule and replace Caesar with Jesus, right? That's what the, the Jews were trying to charge Paul with. Indeed, later on, Paul's talking to Agrippa, and he says, Christians haven't been doing anything in a, quarter, in a corner, right? Everything they've done, they have done openly. They're not trying to, to secretly overthrow the, the Roman government. Jesus, to the consternation of many Jews, uh, was surprisingly unpolitical. He did not seek to overthrow the heathen Roman government like many thought the Messiah would do. Instead, Jesus directed his followers to pray for their enemies. And Paul goes even farther in 1 Timothy here to say that all rulers and authorities are actually there by God's permission. Paul directs the church not to overthrow the government and install a Christian one, but instead urges that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that, they, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Did you catch that, that last part? Even this was a gospel issue with Paul. He wanted peace with the government so that they could live godly lives that could bring other people to the knowledge of the truth. So far from trying to go against the government, Paul, actually in this instance, is now seeking protection by appealing to Caesar. In the book of Acts alone, Paul has been spe specifically threatened with death seven times up to this point. Right? And that's just the times where they actually mentioned they were trying to kill him. I think in other times they were still trying to kill him. It just didn't say it in the book of Acts. None of those death threats were made by the Roman government, at least up until this point. That comes later. Um, but Paul is, Paul is pretty crafty here. He's avoiding a sticky political situation that might get him killed in Jerusalem. Right? That's what the chief priests keep trying to lure Paul to Jerusalem because they want to kill him. So Paul sort of dodges that situation, and at the same time, he fulfills his desire to go to Rome. And all of these decisions for Paul are guided by the gospel, because Paul wants to get the gospel to places where he hasn't been yet, and he hasn't been to Rome. 
And so Paul is basing all of his decisions not on fear, not on avoiding persecution, but on what's best for the gospel. Daryl Bach, who wrote a commentary on the book of Acts, has this to say about this passage. God's sovereignty protects Paul through the means of the state's law. And once again, Paul's key point of appeal, as he has tried, is that he has done nothing against the state, something that Festus recognizes is true. In a sense, Paul himself sends himself to Rome through his own actions in appealing Roman law. Luke's concern is to show that this new faith of the way is rooted in God's ancient promises, is committed to hope, and is not a public threat to peace for anyone. So, as we move on to application, I want to return to what I said at the beginning of the message. My default position is to avoid anything that could cause discomfort. And as a result, I've probably missed much of what God wanted to teach me because of it. But over and over again, we see that followers of Jesus in the Bible make decisions based on what's best for the gospel, whether or not it leads them into hardship. And because of that, their lives have impacted the world. It reminds me of something that Jesus said in the book of Matthew. And this morning, as our point of application, we are actually going to memorize it together. Now, this is going to make for a terrible podcast, so I apologize to everyone that listens to this later as they just hear me repeat this over and over again. Um, but one of the things that we've been convicted of as a, as a leadership group is we want to make sure that all of us are involved in worship and that all of us are leaving here different than when we came. And so in that, that's why last week we had you guys try to think of I will statements, something that you'll change over the week based on the word of God that we heard, and why we had you pray in small groups together so that we could be leading each other in prayer. Well, this morning we are going to memorize a passage of scripture, or at least start memorizing a passage of scripture. And so the scripture that uh, I feel the Spirit led me to is this. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's Jesus speaking in Matthew 16, 25. So this morning we're all going to say that five times together. Are you ready? Okay, I have a thumbs up from the back. Okay. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 25. It's important to remember that reference. Don't skip the reference. Okay, number two. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 25. Number three. I feel like I'm teaching my kids this morning. <laughs> for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 25. Number four. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 25. Last time. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Matthew 16.25. I almost forgot the reference that time. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And Father, just once again, I thank you for your word that instructs us and teaches us, that disciplines us, that corrects us, that trains us in righteousness. And um, Father, I pray that as the body of Christ here in Bukit Inda, Father, that we would not be afraid of losing our life for your sake. That, Father, if you call us to do something difficult or hard, Father, if we're thrown in prison and kept there for the stupid reason that we won't bribe an official, Father, I pray that we wouldn't lose heart, but, God, that we would see that you are doing something in our lives, that you are teaching us, that you are showing people, other people, yourselves through that. Father, I pray that we would take this verse to heart. God, that this is a promise from Jesus Christ himself. That, Father, when we try to hold on to our life and our comfort, Lord, the harder we try to hold on to our life for ourselves, that we actually lose it. But, Father, it's in actually losing ourselves for your sake that we find life. So, Father, I pray, God, that whatever it is that you call us to, Father, that if we read something in your word and we say, this is what God is calling me to do, and it seems hard or difficult or it seems that I will get in trouble for doing it, Father, I pray, God, that we would just lose our life for your sake because, Father, that is when we truly find life. Father, may we follow the examples of Paul and of Peter, Father, these pillars of the faith in the book of Acts, Father, who were not afraid when they were dragged before leaders, Father, and who, when they were put in prison, prayed and said, not, would you not throw us in prison anymore, God? But their prayer was, may we not stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And Father, I pray that's our prayer this morning, that we will not stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Father, because you are our source of life. Father, you are our creator and our sustainer. And Father, you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, and he has fulfilled the law for us. And he has taken our punishment for us. And he has given us his life. And he has given us the charge to be his body here on earth. Father, as in a moment we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, impress on us one more time the depth of your sacrifice for us, that Christ's body was broken for us, that Christ's blood was spilled for us. As we remember your death this morning, God, I pray that, Lord, just like that song says that we sang earlier, that, Lord, we would look forward to a day when we are together with you. And, Father, as we break bread and drink the cup in your presence with all the saints gathered around your throne. Father, we love you and we thank you. God, thank you for this morning in this church that is such an, uh, a source of encouragement for me. Father, I pray it is for other people. And Father, I pray this week that we would be a light to JB. And I ask this in Christ's name.
Amen.